0: Welcome to Getting Shit Done in Healthcare, where we interview high-performing people who are getting things done, affecting change, and leading the evolution of care. We interview healthcare workers, entrepreneurs, investors, administrators, to get their perspectives, strategies, tactics, and wisdoms so you too can affect positive change. Follow us on Twitter at GSDIH or visit our website at gsdih.com, where we have links to our guests and backgrounds, or follow Karen Horgan or myself, David Eigen on LinkedIn, and please always feel free to provide value added feedback. Welcome to the next edition of getting shit done in healthcare. I am your co-host with Karen Horgan. And today we have from able to, we have Rina Pandey, the chief medical officer, and we have one of their original and longtime investors, Liam Donahue. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Well, thank you for being on today. Our goal is to add to more than just information or background, but to really try to get in and understand and ferret out how you brought the company to life, how you, uh, shepherded it along to its current state and would love to, uh, make sure we address where you see things going in the mental health space. Uh, Able to is probably, the, from what I know, the leading virtual mental health provider, um, has made a lot of headway. Um, and uh, as we discussed before we started recording, I've, I've seen a, a lot of other companies that are uh, not doing as well. or uh, And uh, so with that, uh, Karen, why don't you take over? Um, I know you and Rena have a long history. Yeah.
2: And, <laughs> yeah, we first uh, met you, about four years ago, and yeah. I, I said this to you when we spoke a few weeks ago, we were at a, both presenting at a conference in Las Vegas, and it was one of those 10-minute pitches, and you were just inspiring about mental health. Thank you. You just you, you eliminated the stigma. Everyone in the room, myself included, inspired. So tell us all a bit about how you got to where you are and why behavioral health is important to you and why you chose Able to.
1: Yeah, it's such great questions. And thanks for that, Karen. I remember that. I remember that conference. And it was fun to meet you there. And it's been a uh, wonderful couple of years getting to know each other. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you'll, you'll hear from Liam a little bit too, of course, but I have to credit Liam with getting me to where I am today. Uh, but I'll give you the backstory and how I got to where I am. It's been more than seven years for me at able to. I joined in uh, the middle of 2013, after Liam had made the first um, investment in the company. And uh, the the story prior to that was that I'm an academic cardiologist. I'm not even a behavioral health clinician by training, actually. And um, I was always going to be a doc. I was always going to be an academic. And I was doing kind of the traditional academic job. I'm from Boston. I practiced at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is where I did all my training. And I loved it for a long time. But there were a couple of things that started to poke at me, which is what got me over to able to and over to behavioral health. And one was just seeing firsthand how very often patients had behavioral health issues that were going completely unaddressed. And that, I mean, to be blunt, even at a Harvard teaching hospital that's well-renowned, I think we didn't do nearly a good enough job at helping patients identify their needs. And then, helping them find good resources. We didn't even, I didn't even know what what was the right next step. Is it meds? Is it psychiatry? Is it um, psychology? Is it social work? I just, you could tell patients needed help and we did not do a good job. And it was, um, behavioral health was clearly a a massive barrier. So here I was trying to help them with their lifestyle change and diet and exercise and smoking cessation and came to really realize if you don't address these meaty, meaty, boulders for these patients boy is it really hard to accomplish anything else we're trying to to push for in healthcare? um so that was the, the clinical rationale that that got me over to the behavioral health world back back in the day
2: um, and then tell us a bit about uh, able to and yeah r- sure. we turn to liam, um, liam how you introduce yourselves and what you did and then how you got rena to able to
3: <laughs> sure. Um, well, Rena was um, complying with HIPAA violation or HIPAA, HIPAA, I guess, because we <laughs> actually met because I, I visited her as a patient um, in her one of her clinics, and um, we started talking about what I did, um, and you know, she she revealed that as I like to say, she had this entrepreneurial healthcare persona within a cardiologist's body, and, um, <laughs> and we. After after trying for three months to get an appointment with her as a doc, she invited me to lunch the next day. So <laughs> I don't think it
1: was that bad.
2: <laughs>
3: so that's one way to get get there. Um, but anyway, we we had uh, we had uh, intended to try to find some things to to work on together, um, and it. You know that beginning of that relationship really coincided with um, our investment in, in able to and i i will admit i mean i came to able to actually not as a behavioral health company um i i long ago had backed a, a company called health dialogue which was um, a pioneer in the disease management um, space and what they did is they put um, they identified patients that had major clinical conditions um, they put Tried to engage with them, and they had n- registered nurses on the phone with them, um, and they would help them walk through their condition to make them more engaged in, in self care, and it really worked well. Um, but one, I remember, never forget, on one of the tours, walking through the call center where there are a bunch of nurses. You know, I talked to a nurse, and she said, "You know, I'm I'm more of a psychologist than I am uh, practicing as an RN here," and. You know, this is so much about, you know, making, understanding people's mental state. So I sort of remembered that. Um, and then a few years later, Magellan tried to acquire Health Dialogue. And I remember Steve Schulman said, um, you guys are kind of silly. You're putting nurses on the phone doing CBT. That's not what they're great at. You should get licensed social workers. They're more available. They're, they're lower cost. I sort of noted that as well. And then we all were familiar with the evidence that shows that you know, folks that have depression and anxiety during recovery often spend more and have worse outcomes. And so, when I first met the team at able to, you know, what I saw in, in their approach was exactly that, is how do you improve care, reduce costs, improve outcomes, using the behavioral intervention as as sort of a method to do that. And so, I was really trying to solve those two big problems using the behavioral lens. Um, so, so that, not that I don't care a lot about behavioral health, but it was sort of that optic through which we um, we, we came to the investment, and then of course um, introduced Rena, and she had, as she described, this total alignment, and you know she made magic happen for the company. Without her, this able to would not be what it is. So,
2: but <laughs> what you, that's that you
1: were feeling. Sorry, Karen. What, what what Liam was sort of seeing and feeling from his health dialogue experience, I was seeing and feeling in my clinical experience, right? I mean, we were moving towards value-based care. The Brigham was one of the – and Partners was a pioneer ACO. We were being asked – we are starting to be judged on outcomes and cost. And it became so evident clinically that if we weren't thinking about a patient holistically, it, this is – you can't do value-based care without thinking really strongly about behavioral health and, of course, social determinants of health. Um, but here we were a decade ago and and i was starting to, the, the the selfish part of it was i'm going to be judged on these outcomes for my patients and yet there are these huge things that are not being addressed that we can do better and we need to think about patients more holistically and address them as one incorporating thinking about their physical health and well-being at the same time that we're thinking about their mental health and well-being so i felt that that push pull from the clinical side that I think you were seeing from the investment side.
3: Yep, absolutely.
2: So, 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 so I think really you, interesting. And then I know yeah, you've got, you, um, you know, behavioral health has a whole broad meetings, meanings in different people's eyes. Yeah. And you know, when I first learned about Able to, I guess five years ago, I know the company has evolved over time. Can you talk to us a bit about what the company started at, who you were targeting? And how you've evolved, and I, I, I hate to use the word pivot, but maybe you had to pivot or change along the way.
1: Yeah, I'll start, and Liam, feel free to, to add. I, you know, Actually, we actually haven't had to pivot that much, believe it or not. The core tenets of what we do today have been there from the very beginning. Um at our core, we're a virtual provider of very high-quality, evidence-based, and outcomes-driven behavioral health care. That has never changed. Um, the, the combination of technology and a platform to enable very high-quality care delivery through our provider network has been central. And this marriage and balance of of humans on the one hand, um, but also technology and digital on the other and trying to find for the right patient, the right blend of tech plus people to meet their need to deliver a really good clinical outcome. So that's been kind of core from, from the beginning. Um, and you know, I, I, I keep using those same adjectives and I've used them since the first day I showed up at able to right? Um evidence-based protocol structured outcomes driven like it have been central to to our philosophy and, and we've not budged from that
3: yeah no I, I i'd agree and um you know as as you know the temptation to be distracted and chase other areas has always been there and one of the great things about able to is it's just really stuck to what it does extremely well and When it does make a move, which uh, we we acquired Joyable to add more of a lighter touch, you know, more uh, digital only approach or mostly digital approach, Uh, we did that you know very deliberately as an additive uh, feature as opposed to you know a redirection of the business.
1: You know what has changed though, like to your point, Liam, that in the beginning, like you didn't come at this thinking about it as a behavioral health solution. Um, that that framing has shifted for us, to be honest. You know, when when I started, we we were using euphemistic terms like behavioral change. And we were we were trying to get people to pay attention to using behavioral health as a tool and an intervention to have an impact on a broader set of outcomes for patients with physical health conditions. So, so we had to kind of massage the terminology as the space wasn't really ready to think about behavioral health proper. Um, and over time, as the world has shifted and now there's an intense interest and focus on mental health, we have been freed in a way to be you know, open about what we really do, which is we deliver behavioral health intervention. It has the benefit of having an impact on physical health and medical outcomes and medical costs and total cost of care. But at its core, we have licensed we have extremely high qualified licensed clinical social workers delivering cognitive behavioral therapy. We have we have had to like kind of massage the terminology to meet the space where they were or were not ready to hear um what it is we actually did. <laughs>
3: So sometimes driven by the market and sometimes by the capital markets and <laughs> yeah. where the, where the I'm higher value.
2: The market and, and your customers, because if I recall correctly, you are not a direct to consumer play uh, that you For go yeah. through employer health plans. So can you talk about some of like your early customer sales or experiences like where maybe you walked out of one and you were <laughs> high-fiving and you walked out of another one and you were like, Oh my God, that was well, just not good. <laughs> totally. Or, or- I.
0: Or, or even the situation where you walked out high-fiving and you were and you didn't get the contract and you was like, that wasn't good. And then you did get the contract, which...
1: Is yeah, I mean, of some of all of them. Yeah. I mean, there's some... To, like my earliest, my earliest travel to a client is a client we still don't have today. And that was in the fall of 2013. And we walked out thinking it was great and what a great conversation. And still not a client. I mean, this is the... The course of history. <laughs> um, our main clients, though, are payers. And we, we do have some employer customers that um, when we made the Joyable acquisition, they were direct to employer primarily. So, we have some legacy employers that we work with directly through that. But our main pay- client base has been payers from the get-go. Uh, and we, we touch a lot of employers under the payer umbrella. So, for, for example, we um, they make able to programs available to the entire commercial book of business. So we work very closely with some of their um, select national accounts like Costco and others. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean the early, we had, we had some early movers, like, I mean, to give Aetna a lot of credit, uh, I, you know, we had some innovative folks there who were willing to take a chance on us way back in the day. And that really sort of set us on a path. And, um, and we had some clients, as you're pointing out, that, you know, still haven't materialized despite some, you know, conversations that felt pretty good early on. And you think as an early entrepreneur, like that went really well. And you just, you don't understand the complexity of talking to payers and you need to get like 50 people to agree to something before the, the contract actually gets written and signed. And it's like this massively complicated consultative sale. Um and we were, I mean, honestly, a little naive in the beginning that, you know, Aetna had taken a chance and that we could then land a whole bunch of other clients. That was, that was naive. <laughs> it took a long time to get other clients over the right. finish. Yeah. How
0: did that, how did that part of it go? I'm just curious on getting MSAs with master service agreements for mm-hmm. some listeners um, and, and getting those ironed out. So there's simpler. And then some customers say, we don't sign yours, you sign ours or you know, there's all that different uh, different experience that you may have. I'm just curious, like how long that took to iron out, and what you know, what and and Liam, maybe some of this is even for you if you got involved on the you know legal and and then. It, maybe even weave in a little bit, Liam, from your perspective, getting other investors involved. I, I'm I'm going to guess that that you marched Rena in front of investors quite frequently. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't say marched, but <laughs> definitely. It, it, well, uh, I'm teasing. Marches is strategically walking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I, I just
3: carried her bags. <laughs>
1: Um, I'll start on the contracting thing and then, uh, Liam, please add, uh, it's interesting. So because we're a provider, the contracting is a little bit different for us. So, um, and this is part of the, you gotta be a little creative early on and figure out how the heck to get in, get in. Um, but because we're a provider, the contract was a network provider contract what we had to do was negotiate a fee schedule that we wanted that was different. And that was, that, that was really the hard part to show the value you create to, um, enable a, a, you know, a payer partner to agree to a higher than usual fee schedule. But the contract initially was just a network provider contract. Later, as we grew and developed other more vendor like, um, elements of our solution. Um, so today we get claims data from our payer partners. We have algorithms that we utilize to identify high-risk individuals who may need our programs. We have a whole engagement team that's making outreach to those individuals. All that is a little more vendor-like. And so now, now we have we master services agreements and SOWs under that and provider contracts. And so but the earliest days was just get us in your network and let us take care of your patients, which was a nice way to get in um
2: early on. So you know that's interesting. So if you're a provider, which makes complete sense because you are, but mm-hmm. how did the consumers members learn about you to access you as a provider? Because your platform is different than what we hear about, I don't want to put other names out there, but where someone just wants, like you know, here in the pandemic, it's you know, depression, I'm gonna use a virtual visit. But how did people learn about you?
1: yeah so that has shifted over over the years. Um, in the earliest days we were wholly dependent on patients getting referred to us. and because our focus had really started out on these high risk complex medically comorbid patients who had both physical health issues and mental health issues, um, we we tied in closely with the payers care management teams uh, so, and predominantly on the medical side of the house. So if a patient was in care management, had had a recent heart attack or had complicated diabetes and wasn't doing well. We actually trained a lot of these nurses, the same kind of nurses that Liam, you were mentioning, uh, you know, a couple like mm-hmm. health mm-hmm. Dialogue would have had that now a lot of those clinicians live under the payer umbrella um, and they would refer to us. But those referrals were few and far between because people weren't thinking about mental health. They weren't thinking about behavioral health. And so that's, that's actually what prompted this whole, okay, we need to own engagement thinking and what encouraged us to tell our payer partners, you need to send us the data on these members so we can figure out who needs us. And then we'll take ownership of that. You don't have to pay us for that. We we only get paid if we deliver care. We'll take the whole burden of figuring out who needs us, making outreach to those who need us, getting them set up with a treatment program where appropriate. Um, we needed to own engagement. And so we took that burden on ourselves now many years ago um, and have continued to build that out. And so now patients get to us because we make outreach to them, exactly. they, they might get referred. They now we do more marketing and you know texting and emailing and you know more, more broader based approach. But uh, the earliest days were just we were dependent on referrals, which is a tough because we only got paid. So if I a hear
2: about, I care. So if I hear about your journey, you started by first getting the provider to you were covered as a provider. So first yep. thing make it available. Then it was check the box there. Then it was, okay, now we need to send people to us. So as, as our listeners are hearing about, well, how do I get to market? Sometimes you first have to lay that groundwork before you start actually attracting all of your users, customers. Right. And I think that's an interesting learning because it's, it's. I don't want to say this is a chicken and egg. And maybe this wasn't a deliberate approach, but it seems to have worked. Yeah.
1: Yeah. In our case, you had to have had that foundation, right? Because you can't deliver care without being set up as a PC and thinking about, you know, medical, um, you know, the right, the laws of governance of, of care delivery. Uh, yeah, it had to get set up all, we had to have it in place before you could even get one patient in the door.
3: Yeah. And, and Karen, I I'd take another um, kind of practical optic is able to follows a formula that I actually think really works in in digital health companies. And that's, and Rena referenced the partnership with Aetna from the early days. That was such, um, that was literally, I think one executive there who saw some, some interest in could these guys do what they say, I'm going to give it a try. And sort of put a little bit of personal skin in the game and that, that gave us a window to start working with Aetna. The, the smart thing, and this is right when Rena got involved was that in that, Initial relationship, we were maniacal about making sure that we captured the data to show that what we were doing really worked. Um, it wasn't enough to just have the customer; we really wanted to demonstrate efficacy, and we took that largely on our on our shoulders, led by Rena. And then, when we were able to consolidate that over probably eight months or ten months, Marina um, she then went and worked with the CMO of at the time to. Publish on that on those results, and so formulaically, you sort of have a, a pilot, like you know, comf- customer that's willing to take a bet, capture data. You then hopefully publish the data, and when we came out of that, when that first you know, got published, we were able to go to market and talk to other payers who are you know, naturally conservative buyers and say we have independent validation plus uh, we have a reference customer that you'd recognize. And that took all the that took so much of the risk out of um, hiring able to as the the next um, customer. And, you know, that that formula I've seen work
0: really well in other companies. And I think, you know, able to played it perfectly. So that since your mass general background, that's like you never go wrong with the Harvard guy, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: Brigham and Women's. Let me clarify. Not mass general,
0: general, <laughs> now, I I I understand. Although it's
1: Now Mass General Brigham all. You know then is, is, the,
0: is that is that the last month all of a sudden because I'm here I don't remember hearing it until the last month.
1: It's so. relatively new. Yeah, it's it's the old Partners Healthcare umbrella, yeah. Um, yeah. which they remarked they're renamed um, and branded mm-hmm. as Mass General MCB. Brigham to yeah. be clearer. Uh, I, that's great. Too it's much so MGH in my
0: background to change the B, the B, but um They they beat it into you up here, don't worry. <laughs> so so how did you know I'm I'm still very curious how you got that data, right? Mental health is yeah. such a cool thing. I see some of the stats you have on your website around fewer missed work days, et cetera, but it's such a and, and I'd love to understand also how everyone's different, right? Each patient comes in differently. Um, as I mentioned beforehand, my wife is a clinical health psychologist and I went to a, um, a, uh, neuroscience or a more all tech oriented conference several years ago. And I came back and I said, you know, ultimately you're going to wind up like a coach, right? You're going to have different VR and other tools to help people get out of PTSD. You're going to have to pick the right things and work with them. And she said, well, people always will want to talk. They'll, they'll never want to stop talking. but her practice was all in person right now the past year hasn't because of covid hasn't been so i'm curious you know i'm jumping around a little but but how people get connections when it's always been online
1: yeah
2: do they
0: get to choose if they don't connect with someone when they start working with them do they get to say hey you know no or do they get to do the patients themselves get to see profiles and then how do you adjust that because that impacts the data you gather, like all that stuff plays into efficacy. And and so I'm just, that's a broad question of things, but it's really hard to pick them apart.
1: Yeah. It's, it's such a great, such a great question or questions, David. Um, I'll kind of take little bits and pieces. So one is, you know, Liam mentioned, I mean, we've been focused on collection of, of data and outcomes from the very beginning. And I, I can't even take full credit for that. I mean, that, that was really set in motion before I even joined at able to. I've had the good fortune of being able to take that data and, and you know, be able to uh, report out on it and publish it, which has been wonderful. But so we set up the platform. First of all, let me back up even one step further. The the, the treatment is really a program. It's not just come and we'll figure out what the ha- you know, whatever you need and, you know, you can do it in session or you know, to and move on. It's really intended to be delivered as a, th- a therapy program over about eight weeks. You get an, you do an initial consultation with your provider, and then you do the, the original part the, the flagship program, which we now call Therapy 360, is sixteen sessions over the course of eight weeks. Um, half of which are delivered by a licensed clinical social worker, and the other half of which are delivered by a coach, and they work as a team. And the content they're delivering is protocoled. And each session on the platform, the the provider actually sees the topic and the content that's intended to be covered. The assessments and the outcomes measures are also baked into the platform. So at the outset, they're doing depression symptom severity assessment, anxiety symptom severity for our pregnant moms or postpartum moms, Edinburgh, you know, perinatal depression score. All of this is baked into the platform. And then it's remeasured at the end and oftentimes in between. And for patients with pain, um, we're, we're measuring pain symptom severity for diabetic patients. We're collecting their blood sugars. All of that is collected. So your question about outcomes, um, we actually have baked into the platform the ability to gather, collect and report back on, on all those outcomes. And, um, the, the, the protocol nature of it also enables us to be really consistent in in the delivery, but then also personalized. So your point is, mental health is not one thing. Patients are different and complex. We've developed many protocols to address the varying needs of patients, but then the providers can personalize to their individual goals. And I'm trying to remember one more piece of your comment, which, of your question, which I love, which is about people and talking. and need. I mean, we came at this... I came at this work because I felt like a decade ago everybody was trying to replace people with technology, and I kept thinking, people need people like you and me and your wife would probably get along quite well like we i I need people, you need people like yes, we can use technology in a in a lot of different ways in healthcare, and maybe sometimes you can do it use it to replace people, but not always like this we're complicated, we need to talk we need to di- you need to dissect out what our needs are and then tailor the treatment program accordingly. And so I think it's this combo of tech plus people that to me is really the magic. I mean, you have to figure out, are you someone who can just do digital? Great. Then let's get you an app and support you. But if you're someone who needs a human, let's make it really easy for you to access very high quality human delivered care. Um, yes, I have one more point. Sorry. I'm feeling I'm all the, uh, the, the oxygen here. Um, But you really can develop a nice relationship with a patient over phone or video, it turns out. I mean, we've been doing this for a decade now, and we get testimonials all the time about how strongly our patients feel about their relationship and that therapeutic alliance they build with their clinician. Um, It it really is effective, and there's lots of actually published studies to show that it can be just as effective as face-to-face treatment, so... Sorry,
2: 't right. some of that, Reena, <laughs>
3: Reena isn't, isn't some of that um also technology to meet people where they are because a lot of yeah. our folks aren't primary diagnosed behavioral it's really they had a heart attack and now they're having anxiety or depression and you know they're you know unfortunately there's still stigma in behavioral health and a lot of folks don't want to go into waiting rooms and yeah, you know, part of the magic was being able to say, Well, you know, you can do this from home. You can sit on your couch and do it. It's not sure. you know, you're you're sort of addressing a lot of the impediments that are usually there for behavioral, which I, I think is is pretty special about the way you're able to approach it. Yeah. That.
1: Absolutely. I mean, right now everybody's talking about mental health, but when we got off the ground, it was, and it's still very heavily stigmatized, not to suggest it's not, but, you know, a decade ago, yeah, I mean, it was hugely stigmatized so to be able to kind of do nights and weekends and not have to take time out of work. I mean, this is obviously the, the promise of telehealth broadly, but for behavioral health, it has particular value to be able to do virtual care to overcome the stigma, especially for working adults who can't take time out from work or don't want to tell their manager they're leaving to go talk to their therapist for the afternoon. Right. That's a great point. How
0: do you, how do you keep I- investing in innovation and, and what are the, what, what, are your primary guides in that? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a former mm-hmm. public markets guy and I would always track, especially as companies scale the amount of money that they invested in R and D uh, and then the percent of revenue that came from newly created products or, and and that becomes harder here because it's part of an overall service as opposed to a product. It's not an Apple phone, you know, iPhone. And I'm just curious how you how you think about that and constant innovation and how you develop, you know, we're, we, you know, a lot of our audiences are entrepreneurs and investors as well. So it's from a, I'm asking a little bit more from that perspective as a company versus just the patient experience that, yeah. that, is that a question? Did I, did I complete the question or get yeah. almost there? It's, it's how, <laughs> how much, you know, I, I would say, what percent of revenue are you in? Do you constantly, do you keep increasing the R and D as you have, uh, you know, uh, more revenue do you keep and, and how do you make, um, you know, the, the problem with healthcare, I, with, uh, mental health until I guess the last five or 10 years is measuring outcomes. There was no expectation of a final thing. You just talked for years. I grew up with friends whose like mothers would be in therapy and, you know, I'd check in years later and like, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years later, the mother's still in therapy. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that, that's not your goal here, right? That, that's not what you've right. created. So it's a very different type, as you said, it's a program. So I'm curious how you keep m- in improving. Um, and is, is the R and D to grow who you can touch is the R and D to grow, to make everything better and kind of how you keep innovating now that you've had, you know, good amount of success.
1: Yeah. Liam, do you want to, do you want to start from an investor vantage point? I'm, I'm happy to speak from my lens.
3: Yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to have more valuable insight. I, the one, the one thing that crossed my mind is I was thinking about this is, the sheer the the value of the data that you capture and it's it's less of an investment in r&d but if you're capturing uh, a better and more refined understanding of everyone who goes through the able to program what worked which therapist had most effect on which condition etc that becomes this very nice flywheel of different of um improved delivery so it's less traditional you know sitting in a lab and inventing something new and much more gaining you know much more precise insights about what you have and where to apply it and how to apply it and you know do you need the six sessions work as well as eight or does 12 work so much better let's go for all these all these insights that we're able to derive just from actually doing the business of the business becomes a pretty interesting barrier and you know particularly companies like able to but over to yeah, you
1: yeah i'll add i think our r&d isn't traditional r&d it may be making a similar point that you are liam i mean we don't have a we don't have r&d per se but i guess i would think about it in a couple of lens from through a couple of lenses one is one is optimizing engagement so you can, you were kind of getting there david right um you know, in the beginning, we were just dependent on one engagement pathway. So a lot of investment has actually been spent on how the heck do we get more of the right patients in need to us. That's that was building out a data and analytics team, building the capability to get data to us and having data infrastructure to support building algorithms, building out an engagement center, which is now large, um, making that you know outreach. So this is some of it is funnel optimization which sounds like a boring term but you know how do you get patients in need to us so we can deliver that care and then on the back end of that using the data to demonstrate back to our customers that we delivered the value that we intended to the other is um, growing laterally or, you know into other lines of business so we started commercial and i think part of our r&d if you will was okay how do we tackle medicare i mean there's a lot of these patients in need in the medicare population there's a huge potential value there What do we need to think about for Medicare? So some of it is more kind of client R&D, like what are the government restrictions? How do we get into that line of business? And then the third is around clinical R&D, if you will. Um, So, okay, we have this really amazing program that's dedicated to this high-risk, high-cost, medically culminated group. How do we take the philosophical pillars from that, but apply them to other clinical condition areas? And because mental health is broad, and we now have a program that's for folks with primary behavioral health issues without medical comorbidities, um, what we call Therapy Plus. We have a digital program, a digital cognitive behavioral therapy app. That's the former Joyable, which we call Digital Plus, also with a coach behind the scenes. So there's the sort of clinical scope um, and broadening uh, from an R&D lens. Anyway, those are kind of the different ways that I think about it.
2: So I'll, I'll ask a question that is, is more likely to come from David, but from an investor perspective, how much influence did investors have over customers that Able2 was pursuing or some of this funnel management that Reno was saying? Was it investors were saying for the next round, we want to see engagement go up by X percent or get three more customers? Or was most of that driven by the management team?
3: Um I, I would say it was collaborative. I mean, one one thing I know you guys know well is that there's quite a few investors that are new to digital health that come out of more um, other segments of the economy where you know funnel management is a science and there's you know you know rigorous um, things and there's a, there's a lot you can learn from that. But when you're, for example, when you're selling to a health plan, <laughs> I, I assure you the sales cycle is bespoke and, and unique and, and all the bloviating from a, a fancy venture capitalist in the world isn't going to change the physics of, of getting a contract signed and so um you know i i actually think you know in this in this enable to we had a great group of investors some of which were strategic so we had aetna and we had Optum ventures and we had um you know our friends at bain and hlm and the blue blues fund. I mean, all of whom invest in the space. So there's a lot of, you know, thoughtful, practical, how do we help move the pipeline forward? Um, and there's not a lot of time waste to try and explain why, you know, you can't predict a sales cycle when you're selling to a health plan, um, which, you know, some other, other experiences you have to, to investors that are newer to the space. I don't know if that, hopefully that answers your question at some level, but it's in this team. it is just a great partnership. I think there's, Pressure applied, self pressure from the team, you know, from the board, all all towards the goal of you know pra- being practical and building. And you know, things took longer sometimes, and sometimes they just moved really quickly. And you know, just, you know nobody went, nobody took too much credit for the fast movers, and nobody, you know, <laughs> really, you know, through you know, get fired for things that logically just took longer mm-hmm. than they should have. So. But
0: did the, did the, the customers? I mean, I assume that as. You know, mental health became a bigger issue or, and a more a more acceptable issue even not just for patients but for the providers themselves and you start generating the data you know, just trying to think understand better how um how that how those sales cycles shrunk uh what were the critical elements like with Aetna? i you know, it's always better to get a champion somewhere inside an organization mm mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, how many, were, are, were were there a lot of stragglers understanding that we really need to address this or, you know, I mean, I'm yes. just curious kind of what you experienced <laughs> and how it evolved and whether you think you were able to help shape that. I mean, you had some very prominent, um, insiders. And then the other part of that is, did the insiders then immediately, if they invested, they immediately, did they immediately engage at a, as a customer?
1: Good question. So uh, it's, it's taken a lot of a long...
0: questions. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You like to pack a bunch of things in one. I love it. Um, you know, it's taken a long time for the space to come around and for pairs to come around. You know, I, I think they would admit it, too. I, I, it, when we started, I felt like a lot of what we were doing was educating. You know, this is a problem you need to tackle. You know, and they'd say, oh, we have a, we, we're addressing behavioral health, you know, which meant, meant like we have one person in procurement managing the, the Magellan or Beacon contracts, you know, like they, you don't have a behavioral health strategy. So some of it early on was just you're missing an opportunity. Like, let me show you the data that shows you that you're missing an opportunity to reduce total medical spend by tackling behavioral health better. So it took a long time for the world to come around to just that. Oh, we got to pay attention to this. And now it's a different type of education. Now there's just a plethora of solutions, and so that now it's a different conversation. They're just confused, and they're running up up you know against what some are calling point solution fatigue. Like, uh, okay, you told me I should pick something. You told me to think about this. So what should I pick? And now it's like, no, 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 no. To your point earlier, David, it's complex. This is a heterogeneous set of patients. You need a, you really need a suite of solutions to come together to address that behavioral health, the behavioral health needs, plural, for your members. And so now we're in another phase of education and coaching. Um, And there are still stragglers. There are still folks who are just getting to the, oh, I should pay attention to behavioral health Um, and, you know, are five or 10 years kind of behind others.
3: And Marina, I I recall some of the discussions around – you with some of the customers, we would have great effect on driving Mm -hmm. down the total spend for a population. But they'd come back and they'd look at the increased spend on behavioral, which was tied to the services provided by AbleTo. And they're like, oh, we've got a problem. And you try this to solve them. This,
1: this <laughs> is not past <test laughs> tense. This is present tense. Like, yeah. Yeah. you know, we're we're starting to be above the line for some pairs, right? Oh, wow! Like, that's that's a provider group that's we're spending a lot of money on. Yeah, yeah but over on the other side of the house, on the medical side, you're saving all this money. Like, a lot of the pairs still don't have unified PLs for behavioral and medical. They're still managing a BH budget over here. They're being held to trend. They have a, you know capitated amount of money that they can spend. And so there's still these sticky conversations where we're trying to get like the leadership at these plans to go, aha, okay, we want to spend a little more money over here, so that the entire pie shrinks. Um, yeah, that's still conversations we. It's, it's disappointing.
2: Yeah, I
0: would, I, I, I would, I would say my observation is that as a provider, uh, you don't have to deal with the typical provider CFO and your customers or payers CFOs who I. Presumably, in the insurance industry, are much better number crunchers because I haven't seen many provide traditional providers, which you're in some ways competing against, I guess, but um, something they don't currently provide. Saving money, like going and trying to get a a a Northwell or Kaiser to engage you and say we're going to save you money on patient care, they don't really. Well, they they won't pay much for that, but I would presume that once you've educated the insurance companies that they will, they say, Oh, I've actually saved. But how, like you're saying, still struggling with getting them to understand that to look at the total cost of patient care with some of them. That's, yes. that's amazing. Um, yeah.
2: Because so they, and, yeah. I was going to say, I, wanna, I, I know that I want to thank you for both for being here. I think we could talk for hours. Um, <laughs> we about today About bringing a company to market, but creating that foundation, and going after the customers for engagement, and then it, Liam, I think it was very enlightening. You talking about you know if you have a driven management team that collaborates with the investors, that's what success is, and that this is all a partnership mm-hmm. to grow. And so for, for those listeners, we really encourage you to make sure that the chemistry and the karma is right, and you know maybe we'll have a part two with with Rena and Liam talking more about uh, some of these challenges because I do think it, it's it's. That the fact that you have to prove the ROI of behavioral health just doesn't make any sense to the world. But I ask Liam, Rina or David, any other closing statements?
0: Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, if we have, if we're able to do a part two, I would love to get to kind of the current state of mental health and, and how you see it evolving. And uh, because it is very rapidly evolving, new tools are coming to market. And, um, and I, you know, now I'm seeing investments in psilocybin clinics, and it's like,
2: right. you
0: know, it, it was it was CBD, and now it's uh, now it's uh, psilocybin and everything else. So, been very curious to, uh, to to have a part two. Great. Well, thank
3: you so much for having us. This was a fun conversation. It's always great to catch up with Rena, but it's great to meet you as <laughs> really well.
1: Yeah, thank thank you guys. We'd love to do a part two. There's so much to talk about in in mental health and the space has really advanced dramatically. So it's fun to talk about it. Really appreciate you guys taking the time. Thank you. Thank
0: you.